This is Stuart Millard, and you are haunted. Thanks to everybody for sending in your real-life ghost stories and paranormal experiences, which I'll be sharing on here over the coming episodes. We're going to jump right in with our first email, which is from Tom in Bognor Regis. Anyone who grew up in England in the early 1980s will remember how you had to make your own fun back then. I don't mean to come across like your dad on Facebook or remember milkmen and taping the top 40 off the radio. Remember gollywogs? I'd show you mine but the PC police would cart me off. You know what I mean. There was no internet and only four channels so you and your mates would find ways to amuse yourselves. For us this usually involved roaming around wastelands or riding our bikes. There was an abandoned farm we used to hang out at, making ramps out of timber and throwing stuff at the pylons. The most popular activity was everyone cramming in the phone box after school to make prank calls. It was the usual childish stuff, looking up people with rude sounding names in the book and asking if we could speak to Mr A Nurse or Mrs Bottoms. One time we got hold of the headmaster's number and used to ring him up and fart down the receiver, although we had to stop when he called a special assembly about it. Eventually, we exhausted all the funny real names and would order taxis for Mr Piss or phone Childline pretending to be other kids from our school and saying that our parents made us wash our hair in the toilet or eat out of a dog bowl. Obviously I wouldn't do anything like that now, but at the time it didn't seem so bad. I can't remember who came up with it, but at a certain point we started daring each other to ring the devil. We got it in our heads that his phone number was 666 and if you rang it you get a direct line to hell. Like most things at that age, it was ascribed to someone's older brother who knew a kid that had definitely gotten through and spoken to Satan. I don't even remember taking my turn, which is a testament to how it obviously didn't work. Three digits aren't enough for a real phone number, apart from your emergency services. There was that old joke where, if you dialed 666, the police would turn up, standing on their heads. Anyway, some kids were scared just by the thought of it, by the idea that the devil might answer, like Bloody Mary or Candyman. And as I said, it didn't work. And one by one we went in while the others waited outside, only to quickly emerge with a shrug. Until Kevin's turn. From outside we heard him say a surprised, Hello? Before he stood with the receiver up to his ear like he was listening. He was in there a good few minutes like that and didn't speak again until saying goodbye before hanging up. When he came out he was white as milk and refused to tell us what had happened, riding straight home without a word. We just thought he was joking and everybody forgot about it the next day in school when someone said that Barry Brown, the weird kid from Mr Render's class, drank a full bottle of matey every time he had a bath. I think it was the following Monday morning when Kevin got sent out for calling Miss Norris a dirty old bitch. You have to understand, he was such a quiet kid. I'd never even seen him get told off. He always had to be home before dark and he was too shy to do any of the prank calls where you had to actually speak to anybody. At the end of term the year before, when we'd all gone in the hall to watch a video of Labyrinth, he'd started crying when Ludo got bullied by the goblins. We hadn't even taken the mickey because he just seemed so soft. It didn't seem right. Over the next few months, Kevin's behaviour began to change. He was still quiet, 
more so in fact, usually off in a corner by himself for playtime, just sat watching or gazing off into the distance. He didn't hang out with us after school anymore, and when we called round for him, his mum always said he'd already gone out. And some kid told us they'd seen him in the phone box. Around that time, George Hopkins from our class invited him over for tea. I think Kevin's mum used to arrange playdates for him because she was worried he was lonely. When George came in the next day, he said that Kevin had, how did he word it, put a pencil right through their hamster. I suppose now they'd see the signs and social services or whoever would be brought in, but this was the 80s. I think it was that night when I cycled down to the phone box, just for a look. And there he was. I watched him across the road for a bit. He didn't seem to be doing much talking, but he was nodding his head like he was listening to whoever it was. I cycled off before he came out. I didn't want him to see me. The next day, Kevin was expelled for breaking Michelle Dodson's hand with a hammer. It wasn't a spur-of-the-moment thing, they'd not been arguing or even speaking. He just walked across the room as she'd been writing and mashed her fingers to the desk. Why would you even bring a hammer to school? None of us saw him after that. Not until he was on the front page of the local paper. The only survivor of a house fire that was said to have been started deliberately. Then he was taken into care and moved away. Even now you get the occasional rumour about what he's up to. He's in prison for murder or he hung himself. Or that someone saw him skulking around town. The phone box is long gone. I walked past where it used to be about six months ago, which is what made me start thinking about it all again. The council stuck a verge over it. I saw there was something laying in the grass. It's usually just dog muck, but this was a ten pence piece. It was one of the old ones. Slightly fatter. I just put it back where I found it. This next story comes from Ryan in Bexley. I've been living there about three months when it first happened. It's a nice neighbourhood. Quiet, especially compared to where I've been living before, in a one-bedroom flat above a bloke who had no concept of an indoor voice. I mean, he never had people over, but you'd hear him complimenting weather girls on their milkers or knockers or what have you, and he'd watch EastEnders so loud, if you weren't wearing shoes, you could feel Ian Beale vibrating through your feet. Consequently, I was so happy to finally have my own space, and it was a relief to find I was sandwiched between a quiet old lady and a divorced dad who worked nights. I always thought bad neighbours were the worst thing, and I found... something worse. It was just before midnight, and everything seemed completely normal. I put my phone on charge next to the bed, then went in the bathroom for my nighttime ablutions. I couldn't have been gone long. All I did was brush my teeth and have a quick sink wash. Fair enough, it takes me slightly longer than most to towel myself off. There's big perineums running our family, but all told it was a few minutes at most. Even from the hallway, I could see it immediately. There was something in my bed. 
My first thought was it looked like how you might stuff your bed with pillows if you were sneaking out as a teenager, or fooling the guards when digging out of your prison cell. It was not quite human shaped, a bit wrong. It was as broad as a person, but only about half the length, with the duvet pulled right over top of it. I took a few steps towards it, but no further than the doorway, where I could see the slow rise and fall of its breathing. I was going to call out. Who are you? That kind of thing. But it felt like I'd be acknowledging it as real somehow. I know it's a bit cowardly, but I just went in the spare room and locked the door. There's not even a bed in there, so I lay on the floor using an old Commodore 64 as a pillow and didn't come out till morning. By then it was gone. The duvet was pulled back and the bed was unmade, but empty. There was no sign of anything in the house and nothing could have gotten in or out. The doors and windows are all locked, and I've not got an attic or a cat flat. Not that that thing could have squeezed through one. With stuff like that, something that can't have happened, over time I think you convince yourself you've made it up. It was a dream, or I'd let my imagination run away with itself. Everything seems worse at night, don't it? When you're alone and the streets are dark and empty, it feels like if something came for you, who'd be there to help? But in the morning it felt silly. Maybe I had just imagined it. Still, I was nervous when bedtime came again. But nothing happened. Not for the next few weeks anyway. Then one night I came back out of the bathroom and there it was again. And over the next year I reckon this happened maybe 20 times. Whenever it was laying in there I'd just go sleep on the sofa. If it weren't too cold pull the seat right back and have a kip in my car. It's always gone by morning and I don't think it ever leaves the bed when it's there, walking around and whatnot. In the end I just sold up and moved. I'm back in rented accommodation and I lost a load of money through the whole palaver. I just wanted to get rid of it. Except I'm not. It must have followed me to the new place. There's no pattern to it and it's never more than a couple of times a month. I just put up with it now. Just accept it. Every so often there'll be a thing in my bed. I'll let it get on with it. Just hope that it's not still there when the morning comes. This tale comes to us from DB. As a bit of a backstory, I've never really been a believer in the paranormal myself, but I sort of fell into a relationship with someone who was real big into this stuff. And though I saw a few things that made me question my scepticism, I wouldn't consider myself, you know, a flake or anything. But this concerns events which happened long after the two of us had split and I'd fallen pregnant by another man who ran out and left me to raise a baby alone. After my maternity leave had finished, just before Christmas, I landed a job at the local museum. Pay was good and the work was interesting, getting to handle lots of valuable antiquities, although my boss was a bit odd. In 2020 he'd be getting me too to oblivion, but this was 30 odd years ago, it was just part of the workplace. Anyway, my job involved the restoration of old paintings that had been filed away in the storage basement, gathering dust. It was usually ocean scenes or countryside, with a lot of civil war battlefields, but there was this one portrait that really gave me the creeps. People often say of paintings, the eyes follow you around the room, but these ones really did. I could feel it staring at me somehow, 
that when someone's looking at you on the train. I daren't even look directly at it, as I felt like I might somehow get stuck in its gaze. One day, I'd finished early and was returning from the grocery store with my son. As I stopped to chat with my apartment's janitor, the stroller suddenly rolled along the sidewalk all by itself, just a couple of feet. As I took a step towards it, my baby rolled away from me again, before suddenly, the stroller began speeding along the sidewalk. Unless you're a parent, you'll never know the sheer primal fear at seeing your child in mortal danger. I took after it, as to my horror, it swerved out into the street as though steered by unseen hands. It barreled through honking cars, out into a busy intersection, finally coming to a stop just inches from a passing bus. I snatched up my little Oscar into my arms. When I looked down at the stroller, I noticed the wheel was covered in pink slime. This is, this is Ghostbusters 2, isn't it? It's the plot to Ghostbusters 2. Yeah, DB, of course. Sorry, I should have read through these more carefully. For fuck's sake. And our final story today was sent in by Laura F. As a teenager, me and my friends went through a bit of a Wiccan phase. Buffy was big at the time, and every Friday night we'd rent the craft from the local video max and put love spells on boys or curses on our enemies. It never worked, although one of our teachers got testicular cancer, but I don't think it was connected. Inevitably, we got hold of a Ouija board and decided to perform a seance. There were four of us there that night, me, Sarah, Lise and Rachel. Rach was scared just at the mention of a Ouija board, as her religious parents had always warned her against them, but we talked her into it. Princess Di had been killed the summer before, so we had the idea to try and get in touch. We had a commemorative plate off Sarah's Nan's sideboard, which we thought would give us some positive psychic energy to help make a connection, and played the cassette of Candle in the Wind a few times to set the mood. Though we planned on holding the ceremony during the witching hour, we got a bit bored waiting, so it was about half eleven when we started. We had an upturned glass and we all put our fingers on it. Then I remember there was a bit of an argument about how to address the princess. Diana was too matey, and Rachel said it should be Your Highness, while Lise suggested Mrs Windsor, like you've knocked your ball over her fence. In the end, we went with Princess Diana. Are you there, Princess Diana? Nothing. I asked again. This time the glass seemed to move, very fractionally. I called out for a third time. Princess Diana, is that you? The glass very firmly and suddenly jerked across the board. No. Now, I know nobody ever believes this when you're talking about Ouija boards, but I wasn't pushing it. My finger was just resting on top of the glass, so were my friends. It really was moving under its own steam. So it was shocking when we asked, if you're not die, then who are you? And the glass began sliding across the board with a smooth, decisive rhythm to P, A, T, finally spelling out the word Patrick. Sarah gasped at this because she'd had an Uncle Patrick who died when she was 12. She accused us of moving it to freak her out, but she'd never spoken about him before, and none of us had even heard his name. We were all shaking, but we knew we had to continue. Sarah asked if it was Uncle Patrick. Yes, replied the ghost, before spelling out 
R-A-R-A. Rara. His nickname for her as a little girl. All the questions we'd written down beforehand were about the royal family, so we just improvised by asking Patrick, Are you in heaven? I still remember the squeak of the glass moving across the board, straight to the word no. Where are you? we asked. Cold, he said. Alone. We asked him what he could see there and the glass spelled out the word nothing, but kept slowly moving. Dark, it said. Then silent. And finally, afraid. We asked why he was afraid and felt the glass move but in these unsure little circles, until suddenly sliding towards four letters in turn. HELP! By now, we were all shitting it, and whatever question we asked seemed to get the same responses. Dark. Alone. Help. HELP! Whenever we asked how exactly we could help, we always returned to those same words. Dark. Or afraid. Or alone. And after about 10 minutes of this, we'd run out of things to ask and weren't getting anywhere, so we decided to close it down. You have to shut it down properly, everyone says, or it's like leaving a window open for whatever's on the other side to come through. You don't want Jimmy Savile following you home. We told Patrick we were closing down now and we had to say goodbye. The glass started moving so fast we could barely keep our fingers on it. Don't leave me, it said, bouncing back and forth between the letters please, please, don't leave me, and pleading with us. Stay, help, 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 help. Rachel picked up the glass and threw it at the wall, where it shattered. And that was that. I took the Ouija board home, telling them I was going to burn it. But truthfully, I was so struck by the thought of him alone in the darkness like that, I thought I might try contacting him again. I never have. We didn't speak of it after that night. Sarah had gotten very upset and kept saying how our uncle hadn't been a bad guy. He was kind and gentle and would give her a quid for sweets every time she saw him. We went to church every week. I was never really afraid of death. Not until I talked to Sarah's Uncle Patrick. Since that night I could not abide being in the dark. I know Greta Thunberg would have a fit, but even during the day I keep the lights on at all times. Well, I've still got the choice. And just time for a few short ones. Harry the Tit from Plymouth seen a bicycle riding around town by itself at night. This from Lauren. A man tapped on the window and waved as he walked by. I was in the attic at the time. And E&G's dog spoke to him. It told me to change the channel to Noel's Telly Addicts. Never talked again. You Are Haunted was written, produced and performed by me, Stuart Millard. For more content or to support the show, go to patreon.com slash franticplanet. Find me on Twitter at FranticPlanet and check out FranticPlanet.com for my various writings. Credit for all music is in the show notes. Alright, thanks, bye!